This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The way people express themselves through fashion and tradition is a topic I haven't much considered on this show. Recently, I've realized how much I'm missing out by not specifically discussing clothing's connection to religious practice and piety, and I'm so excited to discuss religion and fashion on this episode. This episode has been in the works for a long time, and I'm so delighted to bring you today's conversation with Dr. Liz Bucar. She messaged me just before Thanksgiving to say she'd be in Buffalo, New York, visiting family, and so we actually conducted this interview at my house. This is the only episode I've ever recorded in person at my house since I moved from Missouri to Buffalo in 2018, and we had a total blast hanging out, so thank you, Dr. Bucar. Dr. Bukar is a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion and Dean's Leadership Fellow at Northeastern University in Boston. She is the author of the award-winning Pious Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress, which came out from Harvard University Press in 2017 and was issued in paperback in July of 2019. The book is absolutely fabulous. The images included within the book and the inviting writing style bring so much life and energy to what is an extremely accessible text. I know I have many teachers in the audience, so if you are a teacher or professor out there and are looking to study clothing within Islam, I'm here to say your students will grasp and understand this book. It's a gripping read. Furthermore, Dr. Bukar writes and teaches about gender, sexuality, and politics in everyday religious practice but also writes quite comfortably for large audiences. Her public scholarship has appeared in The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Times, and Teen Vogue. Links for her work is available in the show notes, so check it out. If you enjoy this discussion that we have on this episode, I'd encourage you to start with The Atlantic article. Lastly, if you are so inclined, I think you should follow her on Twitter at BucarLiz. That's B-U-C-A-R-L-I-Z on Twitter. Without further delay, please enjoy my chat with Dr. Liz Bukar. Okay. We are we are recording, but um you know, so we're we're good to go. All right. How yeah. do you feel about it? Good. We can talk. We, yeah, we can talk about what we were talking about before again. <laughs> we, we will. If you want we to. will. That's why I was like, I'm just going to turn this yeah, turn recorder the, turn on this because on. otherwise Let's get going. we will. Uh, otherwise, we, are... we will talk about the same stuff multiple times in a row, and then we'll have to rehash the conversation. That's right. This is the problem with being in the same room, and we are warmed up now. Okay. Well, Dr. Liz Bukar, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me. Welcome to my house mm-hmm. on Black Friday. And I've never actually interviewed anybody in my house before, 
in Buffalo, New York. That's right. So I think no one, no one else, no one of your guests have a pair of in-laws around the corner. Oh. Around the corner. Yeah. Unbelievable. So this is like the most fortuitous thing ever because you and I wanted to do a podcast together over pious fashion in the spring, and I canceled on you because I was very overwhelmed. Yeah. Do you remember this? Yeah, there was stuff. There was a lot of stuff going on. Yep, and then yep. I was happy because I was also yeah. totally stressed out. And this is things. way <laughs> more fun. And this is going to be a totally different vibe for the listeners than pretty much all my other episodes because I hardly ever do these in person. Um, so, you know, whenever you reached out to me the other day and said, hey, I'm going to be in Buffalo, I was just blown away. And the fact that your in-laws are around the corner is so fascinating. Um, so... Thanks for coming to my house instead of going to the Galleria. Yeah. Uh, I kind of invited myself over, didn't I, to get out of going shopping? Totally. Perfect. Did that. Did that. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So uh, why don't you go ahead and spend a second and introduce yourself however you see fit to the audience. Sure. So I am Liz Bucar. I am a professor of religion at Northeastern University, and I'm an expert for the purposes of pious fashion anyway in sort of the everyday religious practices and particularly interested around gender and politics and how things we maybe don't always pay attention to because they seem mundane or trivial are really actually great places to think about religion and the impact of religion on the world. I agree. And I was reading this book um, the last week or so, and so many of so many things I've never considered with regard to religion, especially on this show, come up in the book. So I'm really excited to dig in here. Okay. And we're going to talk about your fabulous book, and it's called Pious Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress from Harvard Press. Mm-hmm. And so really quick, uh, I'd like to hearken to the Euthyphro Dilemma by Plato for a moment, if we may. And if you could tell me what is piety and piousness, I would be greatly appreciative. All right, we're going to start with Plato, huh? Okay, let's go. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to start with a loop off. <laughs> so in this book, actually thinking about what piety and pious is, is sort of the point of the book a little bit. Um, the title is a, a working title I had in a, for a long time in my head. I wanted to be able to think about um, Muslim women's clothing, what they wore, um, particularly women who thought of themselves as being fashion forward and interested in fashion and engaged in fashion, but also who saw their clothing as not only coded as religious, but the way in which they um, became more modest, the way they created piety um, in them for themselves. Someone just dung. Was that me? Sorry. That was me. Okay. I apologize. I'll tr- no, I'll turn myself off. <laughs> I was like, we have too many devices open. So thinking about what piety is is really um, what I'm working through in the in this sort of entire book. Um, and the truth is it means different things for different people and different communities. And so that's been kind of the, the fun of thinking through this material. Excellent. So um, how did you get interested in fashion as an academic interest in the first place? Yeah, by mistake, I would say. I think that's kind of how yeah. it goes for a lot of people. Like yeah. whenever I fi- find anything that I'm interested in, it's always by mistake. Oh, so yeah. how did you pursue this? Like what's, yeah. was, is there an interesting backstory there? Yeah, a little. I mean, so I, I actually think that my best research ideas are places where I am myself surprised or make a mistake. Um, and I think that pious fashion probably fits that, that category. I was in Iran doing um, dissertation research way back in... Um, 2004. And clothing wasn't part of my research at all. I was there mostly interviewing um, women who were leaders of different NGOs and also doing archival research in the Khomeini archives. Um, And I thought actually before I went, because I was a little naive, that 
compulsory hijab because it's required in Iran was going to be like a top five women's rights issue for these NGO leaders. Mm-hmm. And they like were like, no, like we have way more important things to be worried about than like the fact that we have to wear a headscarf. This is like not a problem. This is not a big deal. In fact, in some cases, it becomes an opportunity for doing our work. And so that was like a little bit of a gut check for me because um, I realized I had sort of these assumptions um, that I was going into that research with. And then also the other thing that happened that summer was I wore hijab. I wore pious fashion. I wore clothing that covered my head and covered my limbs because that was required by law. That's required by local law if you are in the country, no matter if you're Muslim or not. And actually shopping and retail therapy became a way that my Iranian friends and I would sort of, you know, socialize. And, and it, so that became um, a leisure activity. Um, so that was sort of, you know, so I became interested in just the cloth and the clothing and what the places that you bought clothing looked like and how they were different and how you, you were always weighed on by men, which is so weird. This hmm. really gender segregated um, society. It was like, men in tight jeans telling you whether or not your butt looked good and on a manteau or not. So, you know, all this wow. stuff is so gendered and so interesting to me. And so that part of it, so maybe the politics of it in terms of it being compulsory wasn't a research interest, but like the way in which the clothing was functioning socially and politically was interesting. Um, and then I also had this moment where I had been in Iran for three months and I went right away to um, Istanbul to meet my partner and just for a sort of vacation. And, you know, again, another Muslim-majority city. I had moved from Tehran to Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Both are Muslim-majority. Totally different expectations about what women wear in public, what Muslim women wear in public. I would never cover in the same way as a non-Muslim woman in Turkey. <coughs> it would be seen as inappropriate. But also, I realized that like I had changed. like The clothing and the fashion had sort of changed what I thought of was appropriate for me to wear as a woman traveling alone. And so I sort of saw the way the clothing had done work on me as well. Um, by mistake. Um, but then I think actually in terms of why a whole book focused on fashion um, is really because of work I did in Indonesia where, you know, Indonesia is, uh, is sort of a very, in some ways, obvious place to think about Muslim and Islam and Muslim women because there's so many Muslims there. But when I went there to do work, work I realized that the clothing there I had assumptions about what Muslim clothing should look like, and it was really much based on what I had seen in Iran, but also what I was bombarded with from images of, like, the Gulf, right? And it looked totally different in Indonesia. Like, women wore really tight clothing. They wore leggings as part of their their sort of pious fashion. Um, the headscarves, the, the fabrics were different. The styling was different. And I thought, there's something about the aesthetics, the style here, which is interesting and also might be doing different public mm. work so i think that really see, thinking about the clothing looking different meant give me i think permission to spend now a whole book thinking about not just should women wear hijab or not that's like not really any of my business quite frankly or the, that debate is not that interesting to me that's a that that is a debate that people have written about but more when women do wear um a headscarf or hijab or some form of modest clothing what does that why do they, why do they make the choices they make? What sort of negotiations do they have to go through to decide what they put on every day? And then what does that, that clothing do? What work does it do in public? Yeah. So you're, as a, as a non-Muslim scholar doing research in Tehran and all the other locations that you've mm-hmm. gone to, um, I mean, so you observe this legally required Iranian dress code that has been required and observed since the Iranian revolution in 1979. Yeah. Like, 
you uh, what did you wear each day in the streets of Tehran so that you could you know fit in with this uh, the the mandated dress code? Yeah, so the book actually starts with a story. The best, I mean, hilarious. I was laughing oh. by the way. <laughs> it's a story. I mean, it's a true story. Yeah. Of like, what do I do when I go to Iran for the first time in two thousand four, and all I'm told is that I must wear Sharia clothing. Mm-hmm. There's like no description of what that means. Right. Um, and I'm someone at the time who's like you know, reading Arabic, I can like go see what the Quran says. I can go see uh, what Hadith says. Mm. But there's like not a description of what to wear. So I'm asking every Iranian person I know what to wear. And I show up in basically uh, um, a long a long overcoat, a black scarf. I basically dress as dowdy and conservative as, as possible. Mm-hmm. And everyone else on the plane is dressed like a fabulous like glamorous glamorous yeah. they're all wearing like um brand names that i recognize they're wearing colors and prints they all look fab i look i look to- i like, totally look out of place um i had overperformed a form of like of pious fashion which meant what i wore was no longer fashionable or pious right so um that was my first learning that that was a mistake um and then i basically just learned from friends the first place i stayed was in a pension i had a 16 year old roommate I was 30 at the time. Um, that was interesting. Um, and she gave me a lot of sort of tips. And I wore a very a big range of things. There was lots of things to purchase. People wore, mm-hmm. you know, silks and colors and patterns and shorter or longer. Manteaus is what locally they're called to the overcoats over pants, different styles of pants, different headscarves. Um, yeah, I wore very different things. And then the other thing that was sort of interesting in Iran where I knew I was required to wear um, hijab there locally it's called hijab that's the word that they used for the head to toe look not just a headscarf um, even though I know I was required to wear that when I went to different spaces the expectations were different and mm. I had to figure that out like like within people's homes and stuff people's homes you take things off usually in people's homes once you're in a private space you're wearing whatever you're wearing underneath but like what I could wear to class was so I was enrolled in sort of you know intensive Persian lessons was different than what I should show up to at the Khomeini archives. I was the first American woman they'd had there in a really long time. Amazing. Yeah, and it was sort of clear that I should dress a certain way to make um, uh, to make it easier for me to get the materials I wanted. Um, I tell a story in the book about being invited to the governor's mansion in Esfahan, where. I show up and I'm the only person not wearing the only person not wearing chador, which is the all sort of full body head covering black um, head to toe, the local version of that, because I just didn't realize that in that space that was formal attire that would be considered more appropriate. Mm-hmm. I was wearing something I would have <laughs> worn to class. Um, and so I both looked not as pious as I should, nor as formal. And so just, I, I mean, I just messed up a lot and yeah. had to sort of like read the room and you get a pass. Cause like you're a dumb American, you're a dumb foreigner. Um, but when I messed up, it was like, that's when I learned the most. And those are the stories mm. I try to share in the, in the book. Did you get comfortable? Like, did this become something that was like, you know, that you just grew into over the time that you were there? Yeah. So I, I think that, um, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't, I mean, you know, it's a hundred degrees in Tehran the summer, like often in the shade. Mm-hmm. Um, and people always complain that it's so much clothing to be covered in, um, and so much fabric and the heat, it's so hard for men, but like that was never a problem. Like the because you're going to be hot anyway. The f- yeah, and the fabrics were created shade and like you know in a way, and they were light fabric, so that wasn't a problem. And it just became, it just became what felt comfortable and appropriate. Um, yeah, very quickly actually. Um, 
tell me a little bit about the culture shock of going out of that after acclimating to dressing in such a way. Yeah, so that was so 2004 was sort of um, in the U.S. I would be wearing. Uh, spaghetti strap tank tops sure. right and sort of I mean I don't know whatever was sort of what you'd wear in the summer um, and that's kind of what I had my partner bring in the suitcase from the U.S. <laughs> when I met him there and I was like uh, none of this feels um, right to me anymore so that was one thing actually I learned which is actually really helpful for me when I talk to students is I think they see modest clothing for any religious woman right not just Muslim women wear modest clothing there's lots of religious traditions that talk about the importance of modesty and dressing modestly and I think that Sometimes my students see that as a sign of trying to like um, show a religious identity or trying to like um, show other people that you are modest and don't understand that for a lot of the women, this is also the way that you become modest, right? When you do, so I think we think about religion often as beliefs and that's what's important, the things that you believe in and, you know, the doctrines and the ideas, but the things that you do um, are also really right important. And sometimes those can shift the ways that you believe or see the world. And dressing is a good example. You, I kind of, it became a habit. It became, I, I became more modest by dressing more modestly, even though I didn't believe in the idea of modesty. Sure. Yeah. And sure. so that's helpful for talking to students too, that these, these are not things that are just done to do. They're things that do work on you. And so if you're trying to be a certain sort of if you think that dressing modestly is important for, to be a good Muslim woman, there's lots of debate in the community about that. But if you believe that, then wearing this clothing is the one way you change who you are and you sort of get these virtues that you think that are, are important. You gain them. You become a different person. One of the things that this book is doing for me is that I find myself valuing fashion choices within religion now. You know, yeah. So my editor and I used to joke that we were worried this book was being written for women, because um, I think that women think about the politics of clothing a lot and mm. the gendered politics of clothing a lot. We kind of are forced to. Yeah. Um. So I, I mean, I talk to academics about this all the time. You don't have to be. If you study gender and Islam, you get asked about religious clothing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um. That's the other reason why I wrote this book. I kind of got sick of getting asked the same question over and over again. So there's that. But I mean, also just as being a professional woman your clothing gets policed in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I could perpetually underdress at work for the rest of my life and no one will ever call me out on it, ever. Yeah, that I mean, that may very much be true. I know I definitely got advice when I was on the job market about what was appropriate for someone who wanted to be a professional academic mm-hmm. to wear um, in a way my male colleagues did not. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I used this with my 11-year-old, right? My 11-year-old, they just had a... Uh, uh, my 11-year-old is in sixth grade. They just got a... Uh, the principal to call a general assembly for the entire sixth grade because they the girls felt like the boys were already policing what they wore in ways that they didn't like they don't want to be told to like tuck their bra strap in mm-hmm. or that you know their hemline is not appropriate or whatever um but that's definitely so that gendered thing is uh in terms of clothing i think that women really feel but this is a great way to sort of show that to people who don't maybe feel that pressure mm-hmm. always right is the like ethnographic or sociological research in fashion undervalued in higher education? Yeah, so um, can I define ethnographic just Absolutely. real quick? Yeah, just because in case your listeners aren't uncomfortable or don't know what that term is. So ethnogra- this book is based on ethnographic research, which means I went to the places and I like wa- I observed things and I participated. So like I both 
looked at what people were wearing and then like felt saw what it was like to like be in these spaces and these boutiques and like purchasing and then I also did like informal interviews so it's really trying to be on the ground so instead of like reading just texts or commentary it's supposed to be really immersed in that everyday practice um or that's the attempt in terms of the way the research is is sort of developed. Um, and sorry, what was your question about ethnography? <laughs> Do you feel that like uh, fashion as like an oh, academic yes. area yeah. of research is undervalued? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, because it's feminized, right? Mm-hmm. So it's trivial, it's mundane, it's not important. It's things that you know silly girls care about, especially gendered fashion. There's a bigger problem in religious studies. A big, I mean, if you want to start religious studies broadly. Um, there again, like I was saying, this sort of um, assumption that everyday practice maybe is less important to to study um, is is a little bit of a bias in the field. In my subfield, religious ethics, it's really a pretty strongly felt bias. Most of the work done in religious ethics is textual work, um, work thinking through uh, moral theory or principles or moral guidelines of you know uh, important thinkers, for example, and really. Um, reasoning, reasoning, thinking about reasoning through these things versus looking at material culture, objects, clothing, mundane, every practice, everyday practices as the sites of negotiation of ethics. So pious fashion is a great example. There is not a chapter in this book about the Quran. Mm. I've written another book about um, the Muslim uh, Islamic veil called the Islamic veil beginner's guide mm. um, for a different press one world. And that book does have a chapter on like what the sacred texts say about hijab right like what are the what does the quran say about hijab what does the hadith say about um hijab it's not in this book because none of the women are talking about that mm. they all assume that they should dress modestly yeah yeah okay the tradition says i should dress modestly or the iranian government says i should dress modestly right yeah. in that place it's compulsory in the other sites it's not but say we're in indonesia and you're a 25 year old girl who's decided she should wear what is locally called jilbab they refer to the head to toe pious clothing as jilbab um now, the assumption is that you've decided you should always wear this at some point. You're going to start wearing it now at 25. What do you wear? That what do you wear question, which is the biggest question, actually, it, the, Quran, the sacred texts don't help you. Yeah. So you have to figure out, you know, what does your peer group say? What does a local style, cultural style, what do the tastemakers say? What are the designers putting out for you? The, the conversation, <laughs> the debate, the ethical negotiation, the real... Uh, struggling with what to do was happening when you would decide what to wear every day, mm-hmm. not in engagement with a text. Um, but that was the baseline that everyone kind of assumed and more difficult work was happening. Well, and a huge feature of this book is the images that you include throughout the book. And so I'm, we have the hardback version right here sitting on the table and I'll put some images like in the, you know, in, in the Twitter feed and everything. Oh, Everybody great, wants yeah. to look at it that can, where they can see what we're talking about. But Tell me what I'm seeing here because this is an extremely glamorous outfit and the outfits throughout the book are absolutely amazing. And yeah. so whenever I see these images, I see extremely fashion conscious women who look amazing and put extremely careful attention into what they're wearing every day. And so we think about, um, you know, one of the stereotypes is that like this is a- oppressive you know, oh, yeah. in so, the world. But like, this yeah. is ama- these are amazing yeah. and beautiful outfits. These are things that a lot of people are going to be drawn to and think that um, they, you know, I would want to wear kind of thing, right? Um, that's sort of the point of them, right? So it was so it was so incredible for Harvard Press to allow me to include 30 color images, basically. Mm. I mean, that doesn't happen very, um, very often with an academic press. Those images do real important work in the book, though, because I can tell you, look, these are 
fashion forward. They are um, texturally interesting, structurally sophisticated. But unless I can show you pictures of things, you know, of what actual outfits look like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's having that in front of you. It's like a whole other level, right? So my for, for my so students, important. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think for my students, if you take the cover of the hard, um, the hardback cover um, image. It's you know it's it's camel colored and black. It's like a J Crew version, right? Of I mean, she's wearing these like um, I think they're Gucci shoes. I forget the you know this kind of um very much like Coach esque bag. The the brands are very recognizable to someone who's interested in clothing. It's very sophisticated in its um color and cut, and it's it kind of does the work of both being like this is not this um. It's not as strange and othered and weird as you think it is. It is can also be very sophisticated and also can be very inspiring. Some of the clothing, I mean, I'm particularly really interested in personally just drawn to things that have like play with structure and proportion and tailoring. And a lot of the designers do that because they kind of have to figure out how to cover a woman's body in mm-hmm. more creative ways. If they, yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, the images are meant to do that. They're meant to, I can tell you, I can tell you, but like, look, also look like, look how incredible some of these are. I mean, this photo on page 38, I mean, this is a stunning photo. I mean, this could be a magazine spread. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And these are, I mean, the photos from the Tehran um, chapter are, you know, really these photos are are photographers that I found because of my relationship with um, Arez Fazali, who's a, he's the blogger from the Tehran Times, Mm -hmm. who I talk about as one of the tastemakers. And he himself puts together a gorgeous blog. He himself is a fashion designer. He's based in Paris right now. Um, so you're seeing his, a little bit of curation of his eye, like mm-hmm. what he likes. Um, and um, and he has a great eye. Um, and so it's it's fun to see the design, the, the photographers that he usually works with and what they notice in terms of what, what outfits to them stick out on the street, right? And Why did you go, so... You were doing a research on a different topic in Tehran originally. Yeah, what yeah. was that topic? That it was the original research was for my first book, which is about. Um, see, I can't even talk about it in the same way I can talk about this book because it seems it wasn't written for a popular audience. So it's a it's a looking at the the Tehran chapter or the Tehran research was looking at the way that Iranian women were working within the confines of the post-revolution republic to do feminist work, mm, however okay. that was defined. Yeah, so I was really looking at these um, strategies of these NGOs. So how did you go from Iran, where you went to do something different, but stumbled into this very fascinating area, but then how did you go into Istanbul and then also, and then beyond Indonesia? Like, how did these other locations uh, manifest themselves? Yeah, so that, that first trip was, was 2000, well, that's a long time ago, right? 2004, we're sitting here in 2019. Almost 2020, it's crazy. Yeah. 16 years. Yeah, it's a long, it's a long time. Um, okay, so now I'm going to really embarrass Greg. This is how... Um, Committed I am to public scholarship. Today is November 29th. It is, yes. Yeah, it is also my birthday. Today's your birthday? Today's my birthday. Okay, my birthday was six days ago. Oh, wow. Look yeah. at us. We're like birthday week. Yeah. So I'm thinking about this very much as 2000. I'm 46 today, right? So, okay, 2004. And I so just turned long. 36. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so 2004, when I... Uh, so this this work started in 2004, but it wasn't a book project then. It was mm-hmm. sort of been kind of bubbling. And so when I did other work in other locations... I sort of was collecting in the back of my head, I think, and not even sort of being um, not even intentional about it, starting to collect, uh, build a research sort of idea. 
Um, but the, I mean, I think probably your question is also like why these three locations? Yeah, Cause once yeah. I got like serious about that, I'd be like, how am I going to do this? Cause there's lots of, I mean, the, the subtitle of the book is how Muslim women dress. Like it's a pretty big topic. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like which Muslim women, and I was really committed to like knowing, thinking that you can't understand what this clothing means unless you can look at it like on the ground in context, understand like what's going on locally. So I really wanted to do case studies. I didn't want to talk about it globally. Um, I didn't want to focus on Egypt or the Gulf because so much work had already been done in those regions. Okay, interesting. And I thought that our perception of what this clothing looks like is actually dominated by images from those regions, right? Yeah, like Arab countries, right? Yeah, like yeah. The Arab countries, right? Yeah. So like you're thinking about, um, yeah, you're thinking about uh, certain form, like a bias, you're thinking about, th- that's the styles that we see often, um, often in the media, for example. Sure. Um, and so I wanted to look at Muslim-majority countries, because uh, Muslim-majority cities, because I wanted to think about places where the assumptions were you were, mo- you were Muslim, mm-hmm. if you are a woman. And so it wasn't the same sort of political... Um, uh, I mean, I think that wearing hijab in the U.S. today is a political act always, everywhere. Um, it just is because of our, our current political context. And mm-hmm. I wanted to think about it in places where... The assumption was that you were going to wear mosque clothing. And so then the question was just like, how, what, was, what does that mean for you? Um, it might mean a headscarf. It might not. Um, and so if I wasn't looking in the Gulf and I wasn't looking in sort of the quote unquote Middle East, um, I knew I wanted to think about places that were really different political implications. So Tehran, since I was so familiar with it, was a great case study because it was compulsory. Everyone mm-hmm. had to. And if I was looking at young women, they were probably also women, or they were maybe also women who wouldn't choose to wear it if they didn't have to. Right. But they had to figure out how to wear it in a right. So like they, this lady. Yeah. On page thirty-five, I mean, she's like, I could see her like uh, a punk show. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Go to she's, a punk show, town ballroom, downtown Buffalo. Yeah. I feel like I would run into this person. Right. The only thing that's different is she has a black headscarf on her head, so she's uh, and she's you know her jacket is long enough that her curves are covered, so she is technically abiding by the dictates she's you know that's not the spirit of probably what the ayatollahs were expecting right but she's you know she's not breaking the law either so how does she negotiate that so i really want to think about tehran um and then okay if i'm gonna if i'm gonna have tehran an an urban city what are some other sort of cosmopolitan cities i can think about Mm -hmm. that um and istanbul and um joja the other two cities that the joja is the one in indonesia i looked at were great because they had you know um big young um college age populations i could get access to they had super different histories of the politics of islam right yeah like in really different relationships to and and ideas and fights over what islam should look like publicly and politically and a lot of that was on the bodies of women Mm -hmm. so it's not you know it's there's a reason why compulsory veiling hap- or compulsory hijab happens after the Iranian revolution. It has to do with the way that the Islamic theocracy thought Islam should look in the street. Well, right? and, and then, yeah. Okay. And the, the Indonesia chapter is super interesting to me as well, because um, people don't really think about Indonesia as being the largest Muslim mm-hmm. country in the world mm-hmm. by population. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we also have a generational divide that you talk about in the mm-hmm. book. So where you have the young women in Indonesia observing and the older generations not with hijab. Right. So that was super, so that, that's so different than, than what was going on in Tehran, right? Yeah. In Joja, I had girls who were in, co- who I was mostly working with girls, um, collaborating with girls who were interviewing girls who were in college. 
and their mom didn't wear a headscarf mm-hmm. and thought a headscarf was was it going to be a problem for them quite frankly they're worried about their daughters getting jobs and getting fellowships and um with a headscarf it wasn't the norm so indonesia yes is the biggest by population muslim country and wearing a headscarf is not part of traditional i'm using air quotes and like see my fingers air Tra- quotes yeah, yeah. Air, air quotes traditional islam it's not part of the normal like the the history of the way that islam is practiced in indonesia so it's a modern invention it gets to be a modern thing sure. right? it gets to be like this totally chic in vogue thing in a different way Yeah, instead of a seventh century thing it's a 21st century thing. yeah and in fact you couldn't wear it right it's like it's it's hard to wear it under different regimes in indonesia that and that's also why um istanbul is so great because under ataturk uh, it's uh, this was seen very much as important that women muslim women didn't dress this way right because it was a sign of not being the way not it wasn't the image of Ataturk's Turkey. It was supposed to look more Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was supposed, and Western meant women were supposed to wear, you know, mini skirts, the heads were supposed to be uncovered. They were supposed to dress the way that a quote unquote European would dress. Right. And that image, that, um, that political image was very much then, um, ended up being pressured in terms of the way that women dress. So you had just really different pressures, political pressures and different political agendas affecting the way that women were sort of told they should dress, Muslim women should dress. As I'm going through the chapters and I'm looking at the images throughout the book, yeah. I see in Indonesia, um, the, the outfits seem very reserved. Like the headscarves are very far up on the face, whereas in the pictures in Iran, like the, the headscarves like barely covering the hair in a lot of images. It seems to me like there's more of like a sort of like a punk rock aesthetic in Iran. And in other places, it doesn't seem to be as much. Is that Am I misreading that? Yeah, so part of that has to do with the fact that who I'm collaborating with locally. Mm, um, okay. So it's also partly what they're drawn to and what they're... I, 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 it, so it's hard to generalize in both locations. Sure, I would say that in general, there's more of a, an attempt to wear a headscarf showing more in Tehran. Because it's among, required. Beca- among women who don't want... Who are not choosing to, right? But yeah. who are only doing it because it's required, right? So you, you'd expect to see... Um, people trying to abide by the rules but push those boundaries. Um, and in Indonesia, I think there, um, again, if a girl decides to cover, she's used to showing her hair last week. Today, she's really playing with how to cover and she wants to do it properly and she's trying yeah. to figure that out. So you'd expect to see something more covered. Um, in Turkey, actually, too, I think that the sort of um, uh, the headscarf ten- can be tends to be more style close to the face and round and sort of like almost like a big quaff of hair, very formal. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are certain like um, styles that you can see in these different locations. It does not the norm for everybody, but that yeah. sort of pop up. Um, so it's like yeah. little like provocations here and there. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, there's, Oh, I mean, really everything, when you get on the ground, like a pin, the way that pins are used in Turkey are very, it's very political, um, sort of seen as a, a, a act of resistance to sort of have your headscarf pinned, um, showing that you're trying to, um, particularly when you were really discouraged from um, dressing visibly Muslim, Yeah, putting a pin and that meant that that headscarf was not only visibly Muslim, but really close to your head in a certain way was like a political act. So yeah, in each of the locations, partly it's the way things are styled, partly it's like, the fabrics are used partly it's how um how they become opportunities for for women gaining spaces to uh, gaining access to spaces um uh, it is really hard to generalize about you know i mean this is one reason why the u.s would be interesting case study but there's no way to have uh 
there aren't five styles of hijab, <laughs> right, in the U.S., or 10 styles or 20 styles. So you just alluded to the fact that this study can be done in the U.S. Like, you could do part two of this book in Arab nations. You could do so many versions of this book in so many different religions. And you have these terms that I think that uh, other scholars who are interested in fashion could do. Um, aesthetic authorities... Mm-hmm. and style snapshots. Yeah. So what are these terms and how could scholars use these in other contexts and future studies around oh, yeah. fashion and religion? That's a good question. Yeah, this is a shout out to anybody in grad school, I guess, right now thinking about starting a project. Seriously, do it. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just ripe for the picking. Um, someone should be working on, on men too. More people should be working on men. Yeah, so those are my two intellectual conventions that I came up with as trying to organize all this material. Because if I studied, I mean, again, if I started in 2004, the book came out in 2017, that's a lot of years yeah. of like slowly collecting data. And then the pro- one problem with studying fashion is it's always changing. So I had to think about, look, in each chapter, I'm going to do style snapshots. I'm going to really focus on a season or a year when I'm on the ground or I have someone on the ground and I can really see what's going on and really pay attention to like what's in style right now. Um, Knowing that like by the time the book comes out, that might not be in style right Mm -hmm. now, but like really trying to get a thick description of a particular period. And so I really did it around sort of seasons. So whether or not it's a summer of a certain year or a winter or um, and then really trying to see. So like in 2004, when I'm in, in Iran, it just seems so clear to me that there were these, you know, cowboy was in and mod was in these things mm. and, and how um, and cowboys a little subversive because it's very Western. And, yeah. and so, so thinking about what was there in that space and then the aesthetic authorities was the way I was trying to organize what was influencing what the women thought counted as pious fashion, right? So a lot of times it's like their friend groups. It could be what their family wore, but then also it, w- and sometimes it was what the law said or what the morality police or the, what the sort of like um, official arm of uh, the official mm, self-designated sort of mm-hmm. um, speakers on behalf of the Muslim community were telling them they should wear, but often it was the bloggers, the designers, um, and so really looking at the full range of, of people and influencers that the women were telling me were having impact on, on what they were, what they thought was correct. Cause they all had opinions. Like yeah. I'm doing it correct. Maybe she over there is not doing it correct. Let me tell you why I'm doing it correct. And she's not, or here's how I'm figuring out what I'm going to wear every the, morning. These signifiers are so cool because you could, you know, be cited for years to come with those terms. It's really cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so the fashion industry aimed at Muslim women is in the hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you give us a little context about like what you know we would not see just like walking around Buffalo or elsewhere in the U.S.? Like what is going on around the world for this huge exploding fashion industry? So the the fact that air quotes again, mainstream apparel um, companies are paying attention to the modest market is actually pretty new. Mm. Um, And I think partly that's economic, like waking up the fact that there are uh, Muslims are also consumers. There's nothing about religion. That means you can't consume like modern people consume. We are, you know, that's it's like, it's like McDonald's and Burger King realizing that vegetarians have money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Um, Yes, I just thought Dunkin' Donuts just has a new meatless they sausage do. option. And so does Tim Hortons. Here. We're in Tim Hortons oh, country yeah. okay, here. Oh, yeah, I'll have to yeah. hit that on the way back. On, yeah, I know it's on the way here. Yeah. Dunkin' Donuts, I'll hit Tim Hortons on the way back. So um, so partly that's just like uh, waking up uh, to the fact that there's this market here. 
Um, and so what you start to see is a big you know, global um, sort of ready-to-wear clothing companies catering to, I mean, I fi- think at first it was actually catering to Muslim women, mm-hmm. and then it became a little bit more savvy where they cater to just m- maybe religious um, modesty or just modesty um, broader. But actually what's happened now, which is um, really exciting, sort of exciting, I think, mm-hmm. um, sort of exciting, maybe a problem though, actually, we'll see. We'll see what happens in five years. I have some thoughts about this, but <laughs> we actually have that these same lines are now getting marketed just as cosmopolitan and elegant. So there's been a little bit of an evolution. As Intriguing. It becomes, yeah, as it becomes more mainstream. Um, the Uniglo line is really um, a great example. They had a designer very early on who designed what they called sort of Islamic, uh, a Muslim designer. Who they, they sort of marketed their line as this Islamic modest line. They only marketed it in sort of Asia. Um, it sold out right away. Yeah. Then they started marketing it everywhere. And they called it sort of a modest line. And now the way they advertise it doesn't talk about modesty or religion at all. It just talks about um, elegance. And um, uh, it's almost like a nod to being, in, it's, I'm, I'm cosmopolitan. I'm wearing inclusivity and diversity, these like, millennial sort of norms sure. that everyone is chasing now, right? So there is this um, mainstreaming of, which is new, which is new since the book came out. I mean, I didn't predict it, but in 2017, as this book is coming out, I was like, oh my God, it's like the gap. It's all these big brands are now chasing this. Mm. Um, and it's everywhere. And everyone's talking about it as if it's new. It's not new. It's always been, you know, Muslim women have always worn clothing, right? But now it's on sort of everyone's radar in a different way. I'm glad you said that too, because one of the questions I always like to ask people who have books that have been out for like a little bit is like, what is missing from the book that has transpired since the book was published that you really wish was in it? Yeah. I mean, part of the book I'm working on now, or one of the chapters in the book I'm working on now is a little bit inspired by that, which is, you know, I could see this trend as this book was coming out. It's in the epilogue. And a lot of my first gut reaction to that was like, oh, God, like, thank God about time, right? Like, because representation matters. So when you have a 13-year-old girl in a headscarf in a Gap ad, that's, you know, that's a big deal. And since that initial, like, woohoo, just good news, um, (laughs) I'm sort of starting to be more cautious and maybe more concerned that this is a way in which the image, again, of Muslim women is being utilized in ways that are not really about Muslim women at all. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, a recent, okay, I'm going to show how bad I am at sports. We're near Toronto. Raptors? Yeah, Toronto Raptors. Toronto Raptors? Okay, good, I got it right. So that is a basketball team? Basketball, okay. NBA. Okay, good. So they just came out with, they marketed like an athletic hijab with the Raptors insignia on it. Recently. Interesting. Yeah. So there's no women on this team, correct? Right. It's right. a man a male right. team. So this is like a merchant. This is a merch thing, right? This is yep. like buy this, like a t-shirt, buy. So it, so on one hand, I'm like, yay, like representation. That's awesome. Like that's cool for like, particularly in Canada right now, things are kind of not going so great for um, visibly Muslim women in Canada. There's all kinds of legislature and um backlash against mm. them right now so it seems like a really great sign to have them being paid attention to by the the you know the merchandise department on the other hand i'm wor- wondering is that appealing also to someone like me who's like i want to support a team 
that is about diversity and inclusion. I, I believe in those values. So I'm now going to like support this team and buy some merch for my kid, but actually nothing's happening, you know, in the actual institute. Like, are, do, are they actually hiring Muslim women? Like, right, right. Is, there, is there actually any structural be change being Or is done? it just something to get money? So that's, that's like where like, mm, I'm, I'm more pessimistic than I probably was at first. Where yeah. I just, as soon as something has value and goes mainstream, then it can be appropriated, mm-hmm, yeah. right? Um, and so that's that's the kind of place I'm thinking. Those are the kind of things I'm thinking through now in my current work. Well, and I was also reading the epilogue this morning before you came over, and I found the board responses from the Muslim bloggers quite humorous in response to like Dolce and Gabbana, like jumping into these fashion trends. Yeah, no one cares about me up. Yeah, I Dolce was Gabbana, losing it. Yeah, they came out. Dolce and Gabbana came out with abayas, and they were like, "Yay, we're like bringing fashionable abayas." to um muslim women and nothing about the cut or the style was new they just took their expensive fabric and and so so the, yes you can buy in heralds you can buy very expensive abayas now in london right you can buy a four thousand three thousand dollar um abaya. That, i mean that's that's great for a certain population i guess it shows you know it gives them access to these luxury brands but it's not it's not an innovation in right. clothing for for most women. Yeah. Um. And so like they, yeah, the bloggers are great, right? They're sort of like, pay if you pay attention to us, like pay attention to us, or actually hire Muslim designers, or you know, give platforms to people who are already working in the space and know what we want. Um, yeah. Instead of telling us what you think we want. You know, so you've traveled around a lot to these different countries, and I often think about how I'm not the same person, um, as the me who went to Mexico or the me who went to the UK or the me who went to Canada, like that guy doesn't exist anymore. Like how did these trips uh, fundamentally change you as a person? Like how did you come back like different than if you had never gone? Do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Most of my work has been with sort of a, a global focus an international research focus. And I think that's because I find it, I find I can see more and learn more when I feel slightly uncomfortable mm. um, and when I'm not, uh, I feel unsure footing, like I'm a little bit culture shock. I feel like then I can really pay attention in a different way. And so that's one reason I, I, I really, um, particularly early on in my career, I spent a lot of time overseas doing um, different research projects. Um, I think, and this is the same thing I actually hope for my students. I think that it, uh, like I do a study abroad. I've done a study abroad to Spain where we study comparative religion in Spain. And when I take them out of Boston, they can see, they can observe religion in a different way when they don't feel as quietly as personally implicated in it, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, so I always learn so much, right. When I travel, um, that being said, my current project is really focused on the U S and thinking about trying to bring some of those lessons back home and trying to like um you know also demystify what's actually happening closer to home mm-hmm. um i mean we 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 started today with a little i turned the table on you and asked yeah. you some questions right where i mean bonus episode yeah bonus episode coming your way um where you know part of why you do this podcast and part of why i do the work that i do is thinking about um for lack of a better term like cre- creating better religious literacy mm-hmm. you know um and so sometimes I think we think about religion, the stuff that other people do or people do it in these weird ways in other places. Um, so like religion's messy everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I have, I'm not sure this line's going to stay in my current book, but I have a line in my current introduction, which is like, you know, religion is messy 
and we're a nation of slobs. Like we are the messiest of the messy. Mm. And so I've been really thinking a little bit about how to turn that gaze back on, you know, us being like America back on the US. Well, and you care about um, you know, general readers because you've written for the Atlantic, Teen Vogue, Religion News Service, like for popular audiences. So you're aware of this. How do you see your role as a scholar with regards to informing the greater public beyond your classroom walls or beyond somebody who might pick up a book from Harvard Press? Yeah, that's a good question and really close to my heart right now. And it, quite frankly, it's a new role I've taken on. Yeah. Um, anybody who is listening who knows academics or is an academic knows we don't how do I put well, we're not trained to do that work. That's mm-hmm. not how PhD programs are organized. We're not trained to write in that sort of you know narrative driven, accessible style. We're not um, rewarded for it necessarily. We're used to talking to each other and sometimes that's really technical. Um, and you know it's really um, it's often very deep dive. and that work is actually I think that work is still really important. but I also think um, particularly since, uh, at this point in my career, you know, I'm a tenured full professor. Basically, everything I, I, I could achieve is done. So right. I, I can t- I have the um, flexibility of really thinking about how can my work matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, something like pious fashion, I can teach courses about that. I can write a book for my colleagues or I can think about how to write in a way that, um, you know, my mom's lutheran reading group in pennsylvania can read this book sure which they, which they did right yeah how can how can it be an entry point for them into a conversation about uh they i mean they don't have maybe any acts they don't have any muslim friends right so this is a way into understanding um uh, muslim women um and then how again not everyone's gonna read my book although i would be delighted if that happened <laughs> So then how, who can I reach? So Team Vogue is a great example. Like I'm really interested in the Team Vogue reader, right? That's a um, predominantly female, young. I think their like readership was like 14 to 23. Um, that's kind of like my classrooms. Um, it's also kind of like my daughter. Um, that's kind of the future, I think. Sure. Um, a Team Vogue audience is really woke, really progressive, but they don't do a lot um, of writing about Islam. So how can I bring you know, this work to them and have it be part of uh, the way they think about progressive politics, like thinking about Muslim women as not people, women to be saved, but women to get models for how to be a progressive feminist from. Um, So yeah, I think that, that trying to like um, rethink my, 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 my job and my, my role kind of in the world as someone who should uh, be translating outside of the academy. Um, yeah. It's really, I mean, it's really fun. I mean, it's why I'm doing this. It's on my birthday, you know, yeah. like, this is like fun to do. And I think it, um, I think we kind of have an obligation to do it because we spend so much time thinking about stuff. Sure. Um, we know some stuff. We got to figure out how to like disseminate talk. it. Yeah. It's not even disseminate. Like, it's not like I want to tell you what you should, th- I want to like have a conversation. I want to participate in a conversation that's already happening. Right. Um, and that's sort of what I see in my, my role as. You know, and like, I feel like my role in this is that I am not necessarily an expert. So like, I didn't invite you on the show to come and talk about like minutia. Do you know what I mean? That only experts in very specific fields would be able to talk about. Like, I love having these like normal down to earth conversations that anybody, full professor or, you know, 10th grader could listen to yeah. and enjoy. Yeah. Um, You're like the person who's like playing a dinner party. And yeah. you decide what guest is going to come tonight. I love it. Um, so I actually read your Atlantic piece. 
yesterday, and I saw a lot of parallels between the Atlantic piece from 2018 and the book Pious Fashion. So, like, if anybody's, like, interested in checking out your work for the first time, I mean, that Atlantic piece is so accessible. And, as we were talking about earlier off-air, this book reads so smoothly. I mean, and I know that I'm just, like, you know, just paying you a compliment for your writing. Yeah, he's doing this because my birthday. Yeah, okay. I'll it's it, super <laughs> important, though, because, like, this book is so interesting, and the images that you included are so beautiful, and but the writing is so clear that you anybody could pick up this book and it's the brand new paperback is like 19 bucks. You know what I mean? It's even cheaper on, you know, all those big places if you buy them online. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And I really appreciate that's uh, the best compliment you can give me. And also I hear when I hear from my colleagues that it works really well in a classroom, that's also a compliment I love to hear because that was really intentional. Um, My other, I think I was joking with you before we started. (laughs) This is not my first book. My other books are brilliant. Um, Some of them are really dense or maybe not, you know, they're not meant for my mother's Lutheran reading group. Sure. Right? So trying to figure out how to talk about stuff um, that mattered in ways that would have it be, um, I have the things I wanted to say be sticky, like stick with you with yeah. using stories, but not sort of just like um, bombarding, making the, making the book itself the conversation too, right? So really good books are not information you get yeah they're an invitation for a conversation yeah. like here this is what you know and that's why i'm in the book like you can see things that i do that are wrong and i'm hoping that like look i learned so much from this big faux pas i made like yeah maybe you can learn something from it or maybe you'll disagree with me but here come have this conversation i talked to a lot of people and did a lot of work thinking about this you know come into the conversation with me i knew i was going to love the book because on page one of the book you tell the story about like touching the items in your bag to make sure they haven't magically disappeared while you're in the flight like because oh, i was like, so worried going into tehran that i'd forgotten something I'd yeah rested as soon as i got there and yeah. like when i fly i open up my backpack like every 45 minutes and i touch my passport or i touch my wallet like just to make sure that they haven't magically vanished in like in into thin air yeah i'm like the most paranoid traveler but like so i'm constantly checking on all of my things like touching to make sure they still exist in the world and that i haven't screwed up so i was like that's why i knew i was gonna love the book because you you had me laugh on page one oh that's nice i mean i think it's it's nice to know that real people are researchers too like we're actually people and we have our own sort of um you know things that happen to us i also think beginning to think that the one way in which academics can be better at talking to audiences outside the academy is not to be so self-conscious about always seeming right and yeah. worried about being an expert. Like I think that the more vulnerable we can be, um, I'm playing with this a lot in my current book too, really um, again, trying to invite that conversation by being like, I am just a conversation partner that like did a lot of thinking about this and research ahead of time here. I'll put my cards on the table. Like, like, you know, yeah. what, what do you think? Like, and I, what I really want you to, really want to have happen is that you just think something differently maybe by the time you're done maybe not the same thing as i do right but that you see something different notice something different have a different perspective on on a subject you have another topic that you're working on right now it's called sacred rights yeah so tell me about that yeah that is a big project we're in the middle of a four-year project and it's on exactly what we're talking about it the project is called sacred rights colon um, public scholarship on religion. So it comes out of the fact that when I wrote Pious Fashion, I suddenly got all these media um, c- 
calls to like write stuff and do interviews and I had never done any of it before mm. and I had spent my entire career avoiding those yeah um, yeah so actually so I wasn't on Twitter if you had reached out to me I would not have like agreed to do a podcast <laughs> um you know I but you're just, so good at this like yeah, this is great well but I had to learn how to do it yeah. and no one no there was no way no one could teach me I'm at an institution that loves public scholarship sure. um and there was no training I was like, I went to the me- the marketing department, the media department. I was like, so how do I write op-ed? How do I? Like, oh, That's awesome. That's not well, but no, they didn't. They were like, we have nothing to tell you. We, wow. Um, I was like, can I get a headshot? Like something like that. Ooh, get your own headshot. So this project is partly about creating a training curriculum for other. Like I basically cobbled together a bunch of stuff, and then what I learned and what I learned from other people who've been in this space longer. We're trying to come up with some training so we can get people who are interested. You know. Uh, Look, we're like academics are smart. We can, if you tell us how to do things, we can figure it out. But like sometimes we need to be told how to do things, right? Um, It doesn't come naturally to us. It's not the way we're trained. So partly it's training, partly it's building a community. Because once you do this work, as soon as I started doing this work, sorry, I said my microphone. It's okay. As soon as I started doing this work, I got people coming at me, trolls coming at me. And having a community really helps when that happens. You know how to react to being more public, and Mm -hmm. that's being vulnerable in a different way. Um, so a big part of what we're doing is these trainings. And another big part we're doing is setting up um, media partnerships. So because of writing for someone like Team Vogue, for example, which those pieces I wrote with a freelance reporter. And I learned so much from her and from working with Team Vogue editors, which was a really different kind of edit than I'd ever gotten before. Um, I wanted, I sort of saw that as what we do at Northeastern, we call them co-ops, like this experiential model, like put an academic with a reporter in a media outlet and have them produce some stuff and they will like learn from that experience, right? That's on hands training. So we're doing a lot of work trying to set up partnerships um, with media outlets. So we can get more scholars, you know, translating the work out for it. Do you have any people that have, uh, is there like grant funding? Like what, what are you, how yeah. is that going? So we have, uh, we're really generously supported right now by the Henry Luce Foundation. Oh yeah. I've heard uh, of them. Yeah. You've heard of them. They're, yeah. Yeah, they're, do they do American like, sounds too? Uh, with Isaac yes, Weiner? Yeah, okay. they have a lot of, oh, they have like just a huge amount of um, projects in this space right now trying to think about public scholarship. So we have a four-year grant from them and that funds these trainings. So our trainings that we have, we, we do one every June for a week and we have funding to bring the scholars and pay them to, you know, pay for their travel and then pay them for their time and labor because I just don't believe in making people do stuff without um, compensation. Um because everybody is overworked. Yeah. Um, and also because we're really targeting um, more marginalized scholars. So mm. like if I want to target, if I want to have, um, you can look at our website and see who, we, who we've um, hosted in the past. If I want to have younger scholars or scholars who are not in tenure track jobs um, or scholars of color, I want to make sure that I'm supporting them in this work. So that part of it pays for the training and the other part of it is grants that help um, uh, pay scholars basically to be uh, labor for these media outlets. Mm-hmm. Um and again, that's also trying to get places like um, we have uh, one this summer from PRI's The World, a three-piece um, uh, series. We have um, we're about to announce the the um, two scholars selected for um, fellowships at Bitch Media. So Bitch Media is great. I love Bitch Media. <laughs> they don't do a lot of religion reporting though. Yeah. So this is a way for them to get content they wouldn't have otherwise. And then I get two scholars who are getting mentored by Bitch Media, which awesome. is like so amazing. In, you know, in their space. So, um, so yeah, the grants, the grant money helps su- support that work and those, those relationships. That's fantastic. Um, so we are coming to the end of our time. Okay. I gotta go back to my in-laws then. Huh? Uh, yeah. Pretty soon. Okay. You, you have lunch in 29 minutes. Okay. Yeah. 
So where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? Uh, just shout out anything that you feel like shouting out, um, et cetera, for people to know. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, so the book we've been talking about, Pious Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress, is published by Harvard University Press. And as Greg mentioned, it's out in paperback, which is a really affordable way of buying it. You can buy it through the press directly online, or you can also... Buy on Amazon or your local bookstore. Maybe. Well, and the covers are different too. The covers are different. Yeah, so the beautiful. Cover, they're both wonderful. They're both. Yeah, I love. I'm such a fan of both the covers. Who, who's your editor at Harvard? Like, what's her name? Sharmila Sen. She is amazing. I follow she, her on Twitter, and she is just fantastic. She's the boss. Yeah, she's awesome. She fought for these colors, these photographs being inside for me. She fought, pushed me to write this as a much more as a trade book i mean really she, she's amazing tough and she's awesome yeah so um but you can also buy it through um amazon if that's where you like to buy your books or your local bookstore i um you can check out my website if you just google liz bucar i have a website on um, humanities commons which will sort of show you all my projects and, cool and it has like links to other podcasts i've been on we'll put this one awesome. up there too and who then, else have you been on um, oh God, shout I'm them out you know if you if you remember any i have to pull them up though i have to remember myself oh my goodness <laughs> that's like so much pressure i don't want to forget anybody <laughs> oh i know it's terrifying but doug i just love the idea of supporting other people who you know do this kind of these projects like my friend andrew mark henry who runs um religion for breakfast like so he andrew, does amazing stuff yeah andrew's been one of our partners actually through sacred rights too because we really want people to have on camera experience yeah because we are really bad on camera and scholars. he is so good he's really good he's amazing so we had some scholars who are doing pieces for him um so i want to make sure i didn't forget anybody because i'd be so hurt so on my web page i've got a link i got a vertical called clips and you can go to things i've read oh, I written see or something i've yeah so um, most recently on a Georgetown podcast called Bid Building Bridges of Understanding. Um, there's also a link to a video there. Um, Religion and its Publics, The Square, which is a UVA project. And for that, I was interviewed by Jane Little, who is a BBC journalist. So she's British, so you know she sounds. That is awesome. Yeah, she knows she makes you sound smart. Um, the first radio thing I did was something live for ABC Radio National in Australia. Um, New Books Network. I love Marshall Poe. Yeah. New Books Network is they're fantastic. So people. great. Um Conversations with Created Women. Um and then also the Religious Studies Project, which is not up here yet, but we did that this um that's up there from this spring. I'll get that up here. So that's a good way to find me. And actually if you really want to be engaged with me and you are someone who likes to be online, I am on Twitter a fair amount and I spend a lot of time actually tweeting about public scholarship in general. And I'm, I'm looking at my phone because I can't remember my handle. I'm, um, I'm, um, I'm at Bucar Liz. So at B as in boy, U-C-A-R-L-I-Z. And, you know, I'm looking through your website as you're talking right now. And a lot of the pictures that are in the book, like yes. you have a few of them as banners on your website. I so do. you can see at um, bucar.hcommons.org, you can see a lot of the images that are included in pious fashion, which are truly stunning. I mean, I cannot even emphasize how important those pictures were for me as a reader yeah. because I, I just was like I, I was transfixed I was like in a, in in a zone of just like appreciating how amazing these pictures yeah. were I was just wonderful yeah I mean really for a book that wanted to take aesthetics and how things look seriously having those pictures in there really it's really everything it's important so get the book check it out check out um, 
everything that we've been talking about. There will be links, lots of links in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Liz Bucar, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas on Black Friday 2019. That's right. Thanks, Greg. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybick. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.